to BiPlus, podcasting for the BiPlus universe. I'm Amy Leibowitz. I'm here with my co-host, Elizabeth Meacham. And joining us today is Deb McGowan, author of Distractions, book three of Gray Fisher. And uh, Deb is also the owner of Beaten Track Publishing. Hi, Deb. Hi. So how about you provide us a little bit of an introduction so our listeners can get to know you. So I live in the north of England, or the northwest of England, actually. Um, I was born here and I grew up here. Then I fled to London, not with any illusion that the streets might be paved with gold when I was 17. Um, and then came back again five years later. Um, not necessarily disillusioned by London, but it's not a place that I wanted to stay for any length of time. It's really busy and kind of a bit soulless really people walk around with their heads down and they don't speak and when you come from the north this is utterly bizarre when you say north where do you mean because that um i live 15 miles from liverpool okay so that's that's pretty much our closest city um and i was going to say you know i think in part that lack of social socialization is maybe a city more a city thing than a um a town thing although mm -hmm. liverpool is is nothing like that and in liverpool everybody talks to you whether they know you or not which i think could be quite disconcerting for strangers i don't even want to think what londoners feel like when they arrive in liverpool um <laughs> but yeah it's it's quite a friendly place around here um and also usually quite cool and pleasant and temperate and and not three days of storms forecast and 100% humidity as it is at the moment. Yeah. What else about me? Oof. I, yeah, well, I messed up school, which is relevant to where I am currently in this life. Um, I messed up school, didn't pass my exams, um, and then went back and messed them all up all over again, and eventually didn't get to university until I was 24. Um, and I studied a social science degree and I was writing all the time I was doing it, but it sort of, I started off doing English literature rather than social science and switched, but it really put me off books. Um, there's something quite destructive about having to critically analyze every single thing that you read. So I, I, I ditched that as soon as I could. Um, then I qualified to teach and lecture and um, pretty much that's what I was doing for a long time. Currently I am doing a master's degree and um, I'm kind of not very much enjoying it at this point in time, I have to say. I'm right at the end of it, and I just cannot wait for it to be over. So so at the moment, that's, that's sort of become my life, that um, every conversation I have is, um, well, my daughter, have you finished your dissertation yet? That's the first thing she says to me, <laughs> because she's, she's in her second year of a nursing degree, and she's finished for the year, of course, so she's incredibly smug. Have you finished your dissertation? I don't go away. Have you ever written a dissertation? No. Well, Quiet. that's coming, isn't it? Next year, <laughs> right? I cannot wait. <laughs> but yeah, so so my, my life has kind of been a mix of um, recovering from not, not exactly succeeding. I'm avoiding the word failure there. Um, but yeah, I mean, recovering from, from failing, really. Um, lots and lots of education. And then gradually over time, lots and lots of writing until the past couple of years where I've been doing this master's degree, the writing's gone down the chute. Um, so yeah, so, so that's me really. I don't know what else would, would listeners like to know, do you think? Um, no, that's, that's a pretty, that's, that's a pretty, pretty good summary. Good <laughs> well, let's get to it's the so book and yes. the series. What inspired the series? Um, are we talking Grey Fisher or Hiding Behind the Couch? 
because they're kind of mixed and mingled, aren't they? I guess Grey Fisher, isn't it, really? Yeah, Grey Fisher. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I'm not sure I can talk about one without talking about the other. Um, That's so okay. The, the Grey Fisher <laughs> series, because, because it's a spin-off of my main series, Hiding Behind the Couch, but Grey Fisher is a side, very much a side character that appears in season four, I think. Um, of hiding behind the couch and he, he lingers around for a couple of seasons and kind of um, wasn't meant to be anything more than a police officer in a car that passed by a park <laughs> but somehow <laughs> completely plunked himself in the story and became way way more than that um, and so I, I, when I reached the end of his story arc within hiding behind the couch um, it, I could have left it where it was, but I thought, you know what, I quite fancy writing a story for him. And at the same time, I've got this other character, Rob Simpson Stone, who was mentioned in the very first Hiding Behind the Couch book and then w disappeared for a while. He, and he literally was just mentioned on a page. Um, came back in season three um, and again, became much more than I expected. He was supposed to be just a, a background character. Um, and as seeing as they both end up living in London I thought well I'll write something that in involves the two of them so that's what I did and then I had to put an end on it somewhere and so trilogy seemed like a plan <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of it was a lot more nuts and boltsy I think in the way I was thinking about it um, than I have done with other series where I had a definite I am going to write a trilogy this will have three stories and I will not write any more <laughs> And so it started out as this that. guy passing the park in his car and blew up into yeah. a trilogy. So a guy yeah. passing the park in his car and somebody literally mentioned once on a page. <laughs> and all of a sudden they just he took over those pesky characters. I like that device actually. It sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it? When you, I'm a, a pantser. Um, so, so when I'm writing, sometimes I do find myself just typing away and suddenly I take my hands off the keyboard and go, oh, I didn't see that coming. And I, and I know it is from my unconscious. And so clearly I had some idea that it was coming, but until you, it's actually consciously presented to you by your work. So yeah, so it was, it, it was one of those things where when I was writing Grey Fisher initially, um, he, he was just one of the well, ordinary-ish police officers. He's an undercover police officer, um, but his role was just meant to be secondary. And actually, I'm just going to blame Josh and say it's his fault for having, for being so nosy. Josh is kind of the main character in hiding, hiding behind the couch, for as much as it has a main character. Um, and and he's one of those characters who he's a, a psychotherapist and um, trained in psychology and really nosy and he can't leave things alone and so as soon as he has anything that's vaguely like a mystery he's off chasing it like a puppy chasing his tail and so once he got this thing in his head that there was some kind of mystery behind Grey Fisher that was it he was off so I'm gonna blame him. <laughs> when in doubt always blame Josh. Yeah absolutely. <laughs> So I, I should just reinforce here that I have actually read this series, um, all of them, and, <laughs> and occasionally have reread them um, because there's at least a couple of them are sort of like my comfort reads. The the very first hiding behind the couch and um, uh, there's a couple others that are just they're like my 
I just need something familiar. And so that's my, it's a rainy day and I have no focus to read something new. And so I'll just pull out something. And um, I've got a couple of, of authors in my rotation like that. Um, and I have now this year just added a couple more. So <laughs> I've got a good stack of books to reread. But anyway, so I have read these and I can vouch for um, Josh's nosiness and <laughs> also being at fault for all of this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I guess you're probably going to have to tell us a little bit about the series, the original series, the Hiding Behind the Couch and how that kind of came about too, because I think um, that'll put some yeah. things in context. <clears throat> yeah, well, I, I always say I, I wrote my own therapist. Um, I, I was in a long period of depression when I wrote the first Hiding Behind the Couch book. And it wasn't actually about writing a therapist. I heard about NaNoWriMo and I thought, oh, that sounds like a great idea. It seems like I haven't written anything since my first novel. Maybe this will be the way to, to get writing again. Um, and not really with any intention that it might improve my mental health, but it kind of did. Um, so, I, so I wrote the first Heidi Behind the Couch book for NaNoWriMo in 2007. Um, and... I remember thinking 50,000 words in a month, that's going to be tough. And I only started on November the 2nd or 3rd. Um, but by November the 21st, I had 100,000 words. I thought, okay, this isn't so difficult then. But it was almost like it kind of, yeah, vomited from me um, that I needed to write these words down. And I had, I had no plans to publish it. I had no conscious thought of... Um, a plot or a structure or anything at all I the only thing I remember thinking at the very start was you know all those stories where they end and he woke up and it had all been a dream and I thought I'm going to start with a dream um, and and that dream was this became this recurring dream that Josh had that you can't figure out even though he's a psychotherapist and he should really be able to analyze his own dreams but he can't um, so so that's where I began with that. Um, and I gave the book eventually, and Nige reads everything. So he did read it and he said, yeah, it's all right. It's a bit confusing with all those people though. <laughs> so it's okay. It's not, I'm not taking them out. They're staying. And there's, there are nine main characters and, and I, I was adamant, that's it. They're staying. I don't care. So I kept those nine characters, um, played around with it for a year, still was thinking I'm not going to do anything with this. And then NaNoWriMo came around again and I thought, um, okay, I might as well have another go. What should I write? Oh, I'll write a sequel to Hiding Behind the Couch. That seems easy enough to do. So I had to revisit the characters. Well, that was the point I think they started growing on me, you know, where I was having to think about um, who they were in a little more depth and their, their motivations, how they became friends, what the interactions were like between the, the different people within the group of nine. And then Andrea, um, my friend who has edited pretty, yeah, the vast majority of my books, um, at that point we were just friends, she was a former student and she wanted to read my book so I sent her them and she said you need to publish these. I said but they're not really, for, I didn't write them for that reason. Um, and she said, we need to, and you need to carry on and write another one. So I let her talk me into that for some bizarre reason that I cannot fathom. Um, although she's managed to get me to write quite a few more books since. So <laughs> she's a terrible bully, a lovely bully, but a terrible bully when it comes to writing. Um, but yeah, by the time I got to book three, so Heidi Behind the Couch one is called Heidi Behind the Couch. Book two is No Time Like the Present and book three is The Harder They Fall. 
Um, by the time I got to the end of that, I was thinking trilogy. I finished writing it and I just, I'd written by then over 400,000 words about these people. Um, so, you know, there comes a point in time where how, irrespective of them being fictional, you know them, they're part of your world. And um, I couldn't let them go. And I just was so miserable. I was like, I can't leave it a trilogy. I love these people too much. So I carried on. Um, and so I'm at, I think, two million words worth of books now. So seven seasons plus, I don't know, six standalone novels. Um, and then the Grey Fisher trilogies and seasonal novellas. And yeah. And I, have, I have, haven't written anything on the main seasons for a while, but I, I'm not planning to stop until I run out of things to say about them. Well, you know, it just keeps expanding too. Like yeah. there's, there's Grey Fisher and then you had the, um, oh my gosh, my mind is going blank, but the one that's about Chrissy. Um, yeah, Gotham Christmas Pass. Yes, thank you. I'm yeah. so sorry. Right. <laughs> Just, yeah, I had a brain fart there. But um, yeah, so that, um, and, and so now we're seeing, you know, the, the younger generation and, and, and I just, and of course, you know, I'm, I think I'm roughly the same age as most of the characters. So it's kind of nice because I feel like we're at the same life stage <laughs> a little mm. bit. So that, that's been fun. And yeah, it's like, it's like you, you know, you, you're you're tuning in. Okay, when is the next season of my favorite Netflix show? <laughs> Only it's in book form. <laughs> yeah, and I promise, and I, really I, I, I promise, I'm not just sucking up. I actually really do feel this way. Like every time I read a book, I go, "All right, I'm so ready for this." <laughs> I think oftentimes I writers get that. more tired of the characters than the readers do. You know? Yeah, yeah. And you get, you just kind of want to do something else, but the readers are still digging it. So, hey, as long as yeah. you want to do it, do it. You know. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, I, I know um, I've heard, read a few times recently about the way that when authors write series, they're kind of writing their own fan fiction. Um, in yeah. fact, I think my, Amy, yeah. it might have been you who said it. And and I, I think I do agree with that up to a point, that there is an element of it where you think, okay, well, in that story, I really would have liked if the characters did such and such. Oh, guess what? I'm the author. <laughs> I can do that. In the next book, they can do that. Yeah. Um, so, so there is, I do think there is an element of that, but also because I'm more interested in character study than I am in the, the plot and excitement. And what I, I do try with the series to, in each installment, have some kind of overarching plot that maybe has a bit of suspense in places and a bit of intrigue and a bit of heartache and whatever. But ultimately I'm interested in how those characters think and feel and behave and interact with each other. Um, their thoughts and feelings and beliefs and 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 that's the thing that's always interested me um the the human psyche um, and so so a lot of it is just really exploring that um hopefully not in too much of a um, stream of consciousness way i hope it's more interactive than that so there's you know there's a range of genders and sexualities um in the story and how do those fit together and what do you hope your readers take away from that experience um, okay, so in, specifically in relation to distractions, I suppose in Grey Fisher generally. Um, again, I mean, in part, there wasn't a kind of conscious decision of I'm going to write characters of these specific genders or sexualities. Um, I just write them and they end up being that. I, I do consciously push sometimes that I will say, particularly with bisexual characters, um, that I am going to 
make it very clear this character is bisexual and I'm going to really, I have to think hard about how I set up those relationships because of, in part, the, the majority of bisexual characters being portrayed um, as monosexual. So, you know, I, I, it's finding a way to, that's not really obvious, but is obvious to say this character does have relationships with different genders of people. Um, so in that sense, when I wrote Will, I did know he, he would be bisexual, um, which is wholly a spoiler for book one now, isn't it? <laughs> but it, I know coming out shouldn't be a spoiler, but anyway, I'll shut up. I won't say anything else, be quiet. Dead. It's a brilliant um, coming out scene too. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so with Will, I, I did want to make it clear that he, he was bisexual. He had um, had relationships with other genders than men um, because there is a tendency for men in relationships with men to be read as gay. Um, and particularly even in a lot of the um, gay romances where they say that the characters are a gay man and a bi man. The, the bi man tends to be almost as if his relationships with not men are way in the past and they're, they're no longer part of who he is now. Um, so, so as far as Will was concerned, that was something I wanted to make clear that he had those relationships. They are still valid. They are still important to him and they, they do play an, an, a big part in who he is now, um, including his insecurities. So, so that was Will. And then the other character is um, a gender fluid character. Um, who, um, how much is it, I suppose it's not spoiling by the time I get to distractions. Do we, do we say a pause and fast forward the podcast by five minutes if you haven't read any of Grey Fisher? <laughs> <laughs> then you won't get the spoilers. Because, so, um, so yes, in distractions, um, spoiler is that um, there is a character, Aaron Naomi, or Ari, as they also um, prefer to be called, um, who is gender fluid, who at times identifies as male, at other times identifies as female, and um, predominantly in distractions identifies as um, non-binary. And um, I, with, with that character, I, I didn't push which gender they were. There were times in the the story where there were things happening in their lives because of the kind of person that they are, that it was better for one aspect of their person to, to be dominant at that point in time. So, so those were the only times, but I kind of did that unconsciously allowing it to direct itself really. Um, I think with Aaron Naomi, what I was hoping was people would just acknowledge that <laughs> non-binary is a thing people you know people can actually be non-binary um and I, I i think if i had any conscious control over it it was that kind of thing of not allowing any reader to make the shortcut of saying oh well this is clearly a a man well this is clearly a woman i wanted to have that very clear fluidity between their different identities um and the other thing i consciously did was mention about the the metropolitan police have a non-binary officer who has two warrant cards um, and is allowed to um, work in their gender that is dominant at any given time in their, in their life. Um, and I did kind of write that into the story as a little factoid along the way um, to make that kind of comparison. But I, ha I didn't know about that officer when I first started writing Aaron Naomi. It was quite interesting then to read and find this person I 
kind of presented in the same way as Aaron Naomi does. So that's so, yeah. very interesting. Yeah, yeah, and I well, I really love Aaron Naomi, and I I love the fact that um the way that people respond to whichever aspect is dominant, it like people seem to treat um treat them like entirely separate people Mm. like who wouldn't know what the other one is doing (laughs) yeah um that comes from rob a lot of it doesn't it yes yeah yeah um i know when he said in the first book um or it's his thought because it's in narrative that he is thinking of it as split person or multiple personalities which is really bad and he knows he shouldn't but it's kind of the only way he can conceptualize that that aaron is also also naomi but Rob really grows in that too and seems to develop much more of an understanding. And I like that too, because we don't often get to see how a person um, develops that type of understanding. Like it's almost sometimes I think considered taboo as if you're coddling a person who is not non-binary mm-hmm. or gender fluid or however else they identify that, that there's that, you know, there's, there's this, I think, in books, there's this taboo against um, allowing people that growth arc, mm. as if real humans don't experience that, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I've now read a number of, of books lately, and they almost exclusively seem to be written by um, people whose gender and or sexuality is not on the binary. So then you get these this different perspective, whereas I think people who sort of have the a more binary identity don't quite grasp um, what it's like uh, to have to continually be explaining, well, I'm not this mm. and I'm not that. And yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that was, that was the other conscious thing I did when, when Aaron initially explains it to Rob and made that decision that this is the one time I'm going to tell you and now it's done, <laughs> we're going to move yeah. on, because it is not fair, and it, it's really boring, as a writer, it's boring, and I know if someone's reading the, the, the series, they are going to get that sense of, you told me this already, um, but I thought, you know, I, I hope I dropped in enough kind of hints and indications along the way that, that this was who Aaron Naomi was, um, so that, that by book three, it is really obvious <laughs> that they're a non-binary person, um, and yet still, you know, I've, I've read reviews. I mean, the, the Grey Fisher series is kind of, it's a bit hit and miss as, ra- as regards readers. And I know I shouldn't look at reviews, but I do anyway. Um, but they, the, there are, because it's my own fault for writing some MM romances that then attracted readers of those. And because, well, I listened to a, a, a podcast with Josh Lanyon a few weeks ago, and she was saying that the one of the curses for the writer, a writer is that you start writing in a genre and that's it then readers expect a particular thing of you and if you don't deliver that they come after you because mm-hmm. you really let them down and I can understand that up to a point as a reader that when you're reading a book and you think well I didn't expect this of you how could you do this to me and ultimately you have to try and keep in mind that an author hasn't has not done that intentionally but I am really naughty for doing that to readers so of course all these readers came from checking him out which is a, a, an, a, an mm romance with explicit sexual scenes in it to the hiding behind the couch books and then gray fisher and they they just don't know what to do with all of that so it is a bit hit and miss um it was um that in reviews people will still refer to aaron naomi as he um 
even though I have made it very clear and, and particularly in um, book two, it's mostly Naomi that we see. Um, they will still refer to Aaron Naomi as a he. So. Yeah, I find that too. Actually, that was the thing that I find in, in writing is that people want to, people want to, I wrote about this today, actually, that people want to make these boxes and whatever box they think you fit in. So if they're looking to read MM Romance, they're going to box a non-binary person into the, they're going to slot them into a male mm -hmm. role. If they're looking to read lesbian fiction, they're going to slot a, a non-binary person into a, a woman or a feminine role. And mm -hmm. that's not how any of this works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this is, this is now the, the third very clear non-binary character that I've written. Um, and every single time it, it does come down to this we, with um, yep. Lee in the making of us. Um, and okay, the, I, I was kind of limited with a cover model because I did want someone that was slightly more androgynous than the model I used. Um, but, but immediately that kind of, I mean, there are still people who do read it, but it lost all the MM romance readers because it looks like a male, female cover as far as people judging on binary terms are concerned. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it is difficult, but I'm, I'll keep fighting. Well, we all will, won't we? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I, I find that interesting too, about, um, the, uh, checking him out that just, Okay, so I read those after <laughs> I read Hiding Behind the Couch. I came into it because I had read, I, I think, did I read Ruminations first? I think that was the first one that I read. And so I came into those other ones later and had a totally different perspective. Like, <laughs> no, this wasn't quite what I was expecting. <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> but then I'm not a person who explicitly goes out and says, well, I'm a reader of MM romance, or I'm mm. a reader of FF romance. Um, I will read pretty much anything. So yeah. uh, it's not, for me, it's re it really is, it does boil down to, did, did you write some characters that I can get behind and want to have a yeah. book relationship with? Then okay, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> very good. much Very much like that as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the checking them out books were, very quite a way outside my comfort zone I have to say and I remember when I wrote the first one I was kind of typing with my eyes closed because the, the sex scenes were just like oh, never written anything like this before and my sister read it and she went I didn't know you knew about things like that <laughs> um, but yeah she and, and I mean some of the I, I, I won't use the terms but you know some of the, the very sexually explicit um, language related to sex acts and she's just like she's doing it a bit like um, who is it who does the reading of Fifty Shades of Grey and she, that was kind of like my sister yeah. was doing with checking her out but it was by the time I got to book three I was so bored with sex <laughs> I was just like I don't want to write or read any more sex ever 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 again um, oh, I feel that just, so much <laughs> it's um yeah it, the, there's only so many ways and, and by the time you've edited a certain number of books with sex scenes and written a certain number of sex scenes, there's pretty much you've done every way possible. Um, and it's, it was, yeah, really boring. So now I'm kind of still in this impasse where I did promise that I would write one final checking him out book. 
and it's not happened <laughs> and I'm like I may never write a sex scene again um which could be interesting for writing a Sol and Adam book without sex but yeah that might there, there's a way to disappoint the readers. thank goodness <laughs> what would they do <laughs> have to talk to each other <laughs> that is almost literally all they do <laughs> so yeah and cry. So I think that's one of the few books oh, where I do cry. Quite yes, a <laughs> yes. That's not a bad thing, actually. I, I, I feel like we don't get enough books where men are emotional in hmm. very real ways. Not okay. They, the two of them can be a little over dramatic, but yeah. that's sort of <laughs> part and parcel of the. I mean, it's a little bit of the fun and the charm of the series. <laughs> so. Now, so let's let's get on to talking about Will and his animal rights activism because this was a big part of the series, and there's a mm. lot going on with that. And I think it's like it's this it's not really because it's not the main thrust of the series. It's not really the plot of the suspenseful story, but it's just always under there. So um, mm. tell us tell us a little bit about that. What what do you want readers to know, or what do you want us to understand about Will or um, or about um, the care that he does for these, um, it's mostly the dogs, but I think he's got other animals too, right? I'm mm, remembering. Yeah. Yeah. Parakeet. Yeah. <laughs> Guinea pigs. Chickens. Um, I was going to kill the chickens, but I didn't. I couldn't. So, I, <laughs> so the chickens live. Um, right. So, I mean, I suppose I've got to give a bit of background that I was involved in entirely legal animal rights activism in um, the 80s. Um, I, I actually wasn't massively involved in that. I was kind of on the fringes of a group that was quite a radical group um, and what would be referred to as the Animal Liberation Front, even though there isn't really a thing there's no unified organization but these were people who were very active very radical um, and they um, it's, it's really hard to explain to people who are outside of that I suppose if you're heavily involved in a particular political cause then you will get that same kind of sense of it is everything in your life it underpins every aspect of your life so to the point where um, you don't have a kind of normal day-to-day -day existence because you have a house full of <laughs> rescued animals who are in, in various states of, of poor health because they've come from laboratories or neglectful homes or um, they're incredibly old and nobody else will have them and um, so, so you, you're kind of a carer for those animals but there's also then the, the action side, the direct action where you have to drop everything to go and rescue an animal from somewhere um, and then the, the more aggressive direct action, which I probably am best not explaining. Um, and, and alongside that then is the, the much more organized activism, things like the sabotaging fox hunts um, and then raising money to care for all these animals. So, so it is your life, it's your career and your existence that once you're involved in that kind of level of activism, it takes over. And so even though I was only on the fringes of that, that, that to some extent did kind of become the way I lived towards the end of living in London. Um, when I moved back up here, I moved with two dogs, both rescued. Um, one of them, I'd lost a house over because he was a big German shepherd and a bit feisty and the other was epileptic. Um, and so I, by that point, I was so used to being governed 
by animals. I really don't know why I complain now that the cat comes and gets in my way because that's been my life for <laughs> 35 years. Um, but yeah, I, I, in a way I wanted to reflect. I, I partly wanted to honour, I suppose, the people that I knew in London who gave so much. Um, it was it was their life and I, I, I admire how amazing they were, how hard they worked, how dedicated they were to animal care and animal rights. Um, and I never, never reached quite that level of um, commitment. I do care passionately about animal welfare and I do everything I can to protect animals. Um, I have terrible triggers to do with animals dying in the media. My most visited site on my phone is doesthedogdie.com because I have to check every time we're about to watch a new series or there's a, I'll be <laughs> watching and a dog suddenly appears on the screen. I think I'm going to have to check now and find out. And it's always spoilers, but I'd rather that <laughs> than live with a, another scar. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think in Will, I wanted to reflect all of that and I wanted to honour the work of the people that I'd worked with in um, London. And Nigel said, I, I can imagine goats and gloves are going to feature in this. So I'm going to have to tell the story now um, that there was this one time, there was a, 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 an urban farm, you know, one of those kind of fields where they keep a few animals for the kids to look at. And the animals that were there had been abandoned. Um, there was nobody coming to feed them. And so this, this group I was part of had reported it to the RSPCA. And we'd reached the point where we had to wait for the RSPCA to take action. Um, or we should have waited for the RSPCA to take action because they're the legal, they're the ones who are legally covered to take action. But instead, you know, bolt cutters are fine. So we this this one fine morning we arrive, um, a group of us, bolt cutters van, and we get into this field where there are there's a, a billy goat, two nanny goats, five guinea fowl. Uh, oh no, two guinea fowl, five geese. Um, I'm just trying to think what else was there. That was basically what we came away with was the, the billy goat, two nanny goats and five geese in this van. So the next thing, we're in this van traveling from London. So there's all of us in the back. Now I'm terrified of, ge of goats. I'm, it's ridiculous. I'm terrified of cows as well. Um, not as bad with sheep, but I'm standing and this billy goat's here in front of me and they just kind of... <laughs> watch you and he's eating this straw and all I'm getting nang, 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 nang. he's watching me side, side eyeing me and I, I cannot wait till we get to this rescue so we delivered these these three goats and these five geese to um this well the, the the three goats we delivered first to this it was a German shepherd rescue and um it was absolutely amazing full of absolute completely battered German shepherds who'd been through awful lives but they were so happy to be there and this one arrived like as soon as we stopped the van this German shepherd with no ears came over he's like come on everybody he was so happy to see us so these goats were were dumped there um now by this point we've been in the van for I think about three or four hours with three goats and five geese we went uh. back to London with the five geese um, and I can't even tell you a story about the geese without bawling my eyes out, so I'm not even going there. Um, but anyway, it's a happy ending, I'll just tell you that. Um, anyway, we get back to London, and the woman who was like the, the big cheese for the, for the rescue had, she'd been wearing these gloves um, the whole time we'd been in the back of this van. Well, for weeks afterwards, she kept going, 
my gloves smell like goats. I can't stand it. And she, she kept washing these gloves. And she was so fixated on the fact that these gloves smelled of goats. She ended up throwing them away and getting new gloves. Um, but it was, I mean, they are quite pungent. <laughs> it was better after four hours in the back of a van with them. But it was absolutely amazing just to, you know, be, be a part of that kind of action. Um, but bless her, she, her in her gloves, she was just so funny. I mean, she was she was hysterically funny anyway. And as I say, did amazing work. Um, but was one of those really dramatic people where everything was a major issue. And she'd, she'd say, oh my God, how are we going to do this? And then she'd just do these brilliant things and pull off a miracle anyway. So oh my yeah, gosh. it was cool. Yeah, I think you and I have talked about the dog thing too, because I have a thing about that. I was really traumatized by reading this book for a seventh grade um, English class in which the dogs die at the end. And I did not know that because I knew nothing about the story. And apparently Where's other people did. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, I, I literally, I took my yeah. copy of the book and I hurled it against the wall in my bedroom because I was just so devastated by the end of this book. I can't read, I can't read a book where you've spent pages and pages building up how awesome this animal is. And then they die at the end. Mm. How is that a good story? Our teacher read it to us in fourth grade. She'd sit us down an hour every day and read some out of that book. And I don't think she knew the ending of that story. <laughs> it was just kind of having a whole classroom of fourth graders crying and then trying right? to compose yourself while you're reading. Yes, this stuff is traumatic. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. Let's move on to uh, about your publishing company. You run a publishing co company called mm. Beaten Track. Um <clears throat> Excuse me. We've interviewed uh, and are about to interview quite a few people from there. Um, really great work, by the way. What do you see as the primary focus and what are your goals for the team? Um, well, the, the primary focus is still really as it always has been. that It's, it's always been about publishing books that, that matter, which is really a, a completely subjective judgment and I don't care what anybody tells me about that. And I've had marketing people go, you know what, that's a really niche market. And your point is what? Because nobody else is writing books for, well, you know, the LGBTQ fiction, for instance, that there is an abundance of LGBTQ fiction. So what have we got? We've got MM romance, we've got FF romance, neither of which really in general fit as LGBTQ fiction. And then suddenly, the big publishers have realized that there's money to be had here so they're creating stuff but but those books are mostly not written um either by lgbtq authors or by authors that have some kind of empathy proper empathy as opposed to i'm going to make a load of money out <laughs> writing this story so so it's always been about that and it's not just lgbtq either it's it's always been about telling stories that are important but the other side of it was always that i wanted to support authors in getting their work out there um because I'm, the the as i'm reading a series at the moment that's been self-published and i really like the stories i really like the characters but the author can't afford an editor um and so there are these odd redundancies all the way through book three just like that stopped at the end there was it was like i turned the page it said acknowledgements and i thought oh well where's the conclusion <laughs> it's just gone <laughs> now that kind of thing is just and it all it takes a lot of the time is just someone to to more objectively look at it and go listen 
you need to develop this just a little bit, a couple of pages of a conclusion, or you already said that in the, the dialogue, so you don't need to repeat it in the narrative or whatever it might be. So those kinds of decisions, however amazing an author you are, are very, very difficult to make for yourself because you're too close to the work. So a, a big part of what I do is still about that. It's still about just providing that little bit of a, a kind of, you know, second set of eyes on people's work um, so that it can go out at, at its very best. That's always been the point of it, not at all about money. But at the same time, particularly this year, the, the, the whole corona, coronavirus thing has wrecked beaten track sales. They're pretty much non-existent. Um, and I, I know how important it is for all of us to try and make some money, even if it's not making a living, it's mm -hmm. about making money. So at this point in time, goals-wise, I'd say it's it's looking for ways to support our writing so that we're not because if i followed the, the marketing gurus and the ideas they have it's about providing a product for the largest market well that's that's not that's completely counterproductive to what we do mm -hmm. um that we are writing books for a very small group of people and and really the issue we have is getting the books to that market so the it's things like looking at the audio books um, producing videos um, just finding any way we can to support the, the, the work we've got to try and give it that marketing oomph because no marketing <laughs> seems to work you know if you buy ads on Facebook it gets lost in the mess and in the algorithms yeah. and if you buy pay for Amazon marketing then it's about getting the right keywords and getting it on the right pages and you honestly you need to have a PhD in marketing to understand and keep up <laughs> with the changes from day to day um, and even I've been watching um, I watch a few different YouTube people um, you know subscribe to their channels and they quite a few of them now are talking about the youtube algorithm in relation to the content they produce and they they're always talking in terms of this kind of um juxtaposition between was like, like pulling at them between what they want to produce and what the algorithm is telling them to produce and then what the the viewers want to see and and that's i think the same kind of situation we're in with creating these books that we're in these massive flooded markets where there's so much product how do we get ourselves seen within that huge sea of books um so i'd say really that's the goal at the moment we've got quite a cool team and and everybody's um sort of on the same page and it's it's really nice um and i just love like the, the facebook group we have this, the discussions are just brilliant at the moment we have a thing for variations on smiles not reaching the eyes which um <laughs> <laughs> our, our resident proofreader seems to be on a um a bit of a run of reading books with various things of characters smiles not reaching their eyes or indeed smiles reaching their eyes but not the ends of their mouth <laughs> it's very bizarre so just little things like that it's just it's a lovely supportive place where we have fun and and then people share their blurbs and and give each other feedback and and sometimes just give each other a bit of a kind of virtual hug um which i love and if i'd been able to if i if somebody had asked me back in 2011 what i would like it to have looked like it would have been that i just didn't ever imagine it could be like that though so it's, it's pretty awesome you know you talked about corona i it didn't even occur to me until you said it that your sales would go down because everybody's at home you figured they could read but i guess if they don't have the money to spend on books mm. that's mm -hmm. 
that's impacting. Yeah, and we and there was an awful lot of giving away as well. Um, and we we did giveaway books in the Smashwords ran a mm-hmm. promotion for about three or four months, I think, um, where you could reduce the price of your book. So we so we did take part in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, I think yeah, I, and I, I, maybe the other side of it is even though they want to read more books, from my point of view, I. In a way, coronavirus hasn't affected my work life. I worked from home anyway. Um, yeah. I mm-hmm. didn't have to change my work patterns. Um, but my students were so stressed out and authors were stressed out. And so I did kind of get a bit battered with emails and questions about stuff that were, they, they were completely irrelevant questions that made no difference. And I did understand that I was kind of playing the role of counsellor there. But yeah. at the same time, I was thinking, who's counselling me while you're all going, oh, how do I do this? How am I going to get my work done with my children yeah. at home? And and I and I understand that. But at the same time, I'm trying to, how am I going to get my work done when you're saying that and she's saying that and he's saying yeah. that and they're yeah. saying that? And he just leave me be and let me do my work. Um, plus, my children were are both key workers and my husband as well so they they were all just going out into what to me felt like a war zone so I'm yeah. sitting at home thinking are they going to come home today are they going to be well when they get back home you know yeah. one daughter's a nurse the other one's a cleaner within the health service and Nigel my husband is a delivery driver in, even now going into Manchester which is back in a local lockdown and it, yeah. and it is terrifying, but at the same time, people are going to me, oh, you, you're all right, you're just working from home. It hasn't affected you, <laughs> you think? Yeah. Um, so, the, like, the stress levels were, um, are massive. So I've been getting more sleep than, I've, than I usually do because I sleep like mad when I'm stressed, so on the yeah. plus side. Um, but, yeah, it's financially, it, from the point of view of beating track, I think because people, even when they bought books, they haven't got the concentration to read them. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah I've been go. trying to read myself and I, I get through some of it and then something happens. And I, our, my, our situation is I'm at home, but I'm usually alone. <laughs> so, uh, but there's now there's four other people at home with me and, and there is a lot more stress, even if you are mm. used to being here. Um, there's a lot more stress circling around you. That's a, that's a very good point. Um, yeah. 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 Although I'm having it on mute because my cat decided he was going to go through a caterwauling bit just a few minutes ago. <laughs> so he's finally asleep. <laughs> yeah, he was howling for somebody. And... Okay. Um, we have... I'm sure mine is sleeping on the workbench in our basement on the paper towels that she unraveled. Yeah. She made herself a little nest. <laughs> so, you know, about your book, about publishing books, though, I've noticed, um, and I've noticed that you're in the books that we've been reading that we've been in- interviewing for there is an inclusion that i don't see other places with other publishers mm-hmm. of non-binary mm-hmm. um, people that maybe wouldn't have been there um even five years ago um mm-hmm. in a lot of, and that still isn't in a lot of other places most other places um yeah so, that's, um, that's been in some respects it's a bit of a fight um where because especially with the um singular they Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand why people get in such a pickle over it's not hard it's really not we've been using that in academic writing forever anyway yeah yeah so yeah yeah just shut up and get, I, move for on. me speaking it is hard because my brain is flying yeah. on automatic and, and you just mess up um, yeah absolutely I don't find a problem with reading it or writing it um, mm. because you can go over your work and, yeah. and look at it it's and not automatic that's 
that's the tricky thing isn't it when you've known yeah. someone by one gender pronoun and you've given another one that you know that's, i mean i'm absolutely it's, not talking about this... that and i make those mistakes too oh yeah um, yeah you know this. some people just taking exception to it and saying well you know they is grammatically incorrect well that's bollocks anyway um yeah so yeah. you know just because that's i mean that's totally different to making a mistake but i because i get the other side of this where I am non-binary, but I am quite. I don't actually care particularly about pronouns anyway. For me, but she, she is fine. That's mm -hmm. what I was assigned at birth, and I'm okay with that. But then you get these smart asses who go, "Well, shouldn't you be a they?" So on the one hand, the so on the one hand, people want us to not use singular yeah. they, yeah, until it suits their purpose to get after us if we're not using it. Mm. Yeah, I, I think we're going to end up with the same kind of thing of um, the, the the kind of questions that they ask that go with bisexuality. You know, the um, well, what are you really? <laughs> what are you really? Well, um, what was? The, I'm just trying to think. What? Should, isn't it just that you're confused that you're still trying to make up your mind? Yeah, you'll get that sort of same thing of. Um, or do you do you have threesomes? You know, but, but it will be the same thing. Well, then surely as a non-binary person, you should be a they or you should you, 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 you keep keep your own gates closed. Don't worry about mine. I'm quite well. Yeah, exactly. On, fence. <laughs> on my fence, in fact, I don't even have gates. So you can't keep them. Um, but yeah, it's, it's bizarre, really bizarre. But I, I find I have to, I'm becoming increasingly militant um, and having to speak out more and more. Um, but then, you know, fantastic things like I was studying doing my master's stuff the other week and i came to this um blocking the module material in the open university they give you access to all your module materials are online for the masters um and each each week you cover a different topic well i was way way behind like six weeks behind and then i just went i'm gonna eat it all in one week so i did and <laughs> just gorged myself on academia anyway i got to this one week and it was about um public engagement in research and the um, author of the week's materials, I can't think what their name is. They have both a typically female and typically male first name. Um, and they are, um, they started the Bi Network in the UK. Well, I went proper fangirl when I got to this week in the module. I was like, ah, it's a bisexual, don't mind me, there's hardly any that are certainly not you know that are outspoken but but they made it really clear from the very first page of their information that i am this person and i am these this is my identity oh, i guess um so that was that was pretty cool you know it's so funny i i went through a, a period of time where i said okay maybe i don't care that much about pro pronouns just because i would get enough people saying things to me like well i don't think i can remember to use the right one and i finally just started asserting myself and the more i feel comfortable just saying no today um the less frustrated i feel with people who don't like who, who people who make a mistake that mm. i don't find that frustrating okay you made a mistake um just correct it and we'll move on and that's okay yeah. mm -hmm. but it wasn't until I could be okay saying those are actually my pronouns and I'd like you to use them that I could let go of feeling so frustrated about that, that I was actually mm. more frustrated before when I felt as if I just had to just accept it. Like, okay, you're not going to remember to do it, I guess. Not, not just people yeah. not remembering. I mean, people pushing back at me like, um, well, I can't remember to do that because I'm old school and it's not grammatically correct. Like that's the one that drives me crazy. 
I just, I can't stand it. <laughs> if yeah. you don't remember the right pronoun, that's okay. We yeah. can work with that. Just if don't you're defend just, it. Yeah. Right. If you're going to yeah. defend your use of it, that I'm the one who's incorrect, then we'll have words. Mm. That's but, a bit like saying, you know, you told me you were called Amy, but I'm going to call you Horace. <laughs> There's no logic to it, is there at all? Yeah. yeah. Oh, where were we? Um, um, we were just about to get to that last question. Um, so, <laughs> so now we're back on track a little bit. Yeah. Um, do you have any upcoming projects? Um, and uh, tell us where we can find you. Okay. Um, well, I'm currently writing um, Seen But Not Heard, which is the follow-on to Goth of Christmas Past. And apparently I discovered when I was looking through my folders the other day, I also came up for a name for the the sub-series that those books are within Hiding Behind the Couch, which is Front of House. Who knew? Um, so today, rather than writing this morning, which I should have been doing, I was... Um, playing around those manga style characters um, because of course see, here, here's the thing I've got these eight characters that are within the novel and I've got the the original uh, Chrissy and Jay that um, Emma Pickering brilliant artist put together for me last year um, but I thought well I've, I've got these other anime manga whatever somewhere between the, the two really uh, characters caricatures so I will create the characters out of those except of course there are no black manga characters or Turkish looking manga characters they're all pretty much white so this morning I made a Watto um, and I was having to find him an afro and I did try to find him a really good cap really cool cap but I just couldn't do that so he's just gonna have to put up with an afro um, and Ev who is um, Turkish so it's just a case of kind of putting some makeup on them and a bit of purple in their hair and whatever. It's great fun making, it was a bit like playing dollies really. <laughs> <laughs> I was turning, turning manga characters into my characters, but yeah. So, so that's what I'm currently working on when I stop playing around with colors. And this is my um, levels of procrastination thing that if I've got study typed work to do, then I want to write and if I've got writing work to do, then I want to design a cover and, and if there's editing to do, I'll pick that bizarrely over everything else. I don't really know how that works, but anyway. Um, but yes, so seen but not heard, um, not sure how long it will take me to write, but it's kind of where the first one, where Goth of Christmas Past focused in on Chrissy and Jay to most, for the most part, this one will be more Amy and Hayden. Um, who are like their kind of right-hand people um, in, in their jobs because there's quite a significant aspect of this is about them being young professional people. Um, so yeah, so their work lives are quite important. And where can you buy my work? Well, you could go to Beaten Track Publishing slash Debbie McGowan uh, or look me up on Amazon or I've got a website, debbiemcgowan.co.uk um, and I've also got hidingbehindthecouch.com if you wanted to go and fall into the deep well of hiding behind the couch um, and never emerge again. <laughs> so, yeah. And we'll make sure that all those links are uh, available with the podcast. Anything else we missed out that you might want to discuss? I don't think so. I, I could have mentioned that Ev is a non-binary non character as well, couldn't I? Um, in See But Not Heard. I didn't mention that Ev is, there is a non-binary character in there as well. Um, so, yeah. Okay. No, I don't think there's anything else. I'm glad this stuff is out there, uh, you know, and I'm just so thankful that there is a publishing company like yours that that promotes that literature 
in a very positive way. So Agreed. thank you. Agreed. I'm glad that it's it's doing what I what it should be doing. That's so. yeah. As long as we're always doing that, and I hope that people would be brave enough to tell us if we ever stop doing that. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks once again, Deb. Um, for being here and for talking about distractions, which is book three of Gray Fisher. And thank you also, Elizabeth. Remember, there is a whole BiPlus universe ready to embrace you. Reach out and find your community.